Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer, who is back from his illness. I too am back from a short illness. It was actually quite infuriating, Michael. We, I brought Paddy on to replace you on one show. I was going to ask him back for another, just do it on my own, and then you were going to come back and everything would have run perfectly. And then I myself was taken with sickness. And that kind of ruined that. Stricken down by the dread, the dreaded lurgy. There's a lot of the lurgy going around, Gary. People were very happy to see Paddy back. And why not? Paddy was very kind. I asked him to come on at the last minute. He said he would. I, he, I think he went considerably out of his way to do so. So this week we want to go over the issue of the amnesty that is being pushed forward by the government. That is coming in in January, they've announced. I know we talked about it before. But I want to talk about it in a slightly different way this time in relation to the numbers that are being talked about and about how the government is briefing the media. It appears deliberately in order to get the media to carry numbers that cannot be backed up and the government is putting forward in a way to the media, which I think is pretty close to being a lie. I mean, explicitly untrue and probably knowingly so. There's also a lovely very finnegale sting in the tail of the policy that i'm looking forward to getting michael's reaction to when we get to and from that i want to go on to um nefit nefit's recent troubles but also a discussion of um, some of tony Houlihan's recent comments he started talking about stuff that hasn't been talked about before and i think we actually do need to be thankful for that but we will go into that it relates to how many deaths are too many and also a just a general conversation about Neffet's interference in the media and how the government now seems like it's starting to crack down or at least certain segments of the government seem like they're getting ready to crack down on it and why it took so long really. One thing you you may have seen in the news Michael, the government's planning an amnesty for uh, illegal immigrants, the undocumented if you prefer that language. According to the department it's not an amnesty, it's a regularisation scheme. (laughs) The European Commission lists amnesty in the contest of of migration and regularization as synonyms so they're the same thing it's it's a political framing to avoid having to say we're having an amnesty yeah the government came forward and they've actually been very careful about giving out numbers but they've been briefing people on those numbers so journalists who've been getting who've been asked have been told about the 17,000 figure. And it's now passed widely into the media and it's passed into commentators and groups. The average person, I assume, would think that the amnesty is for 17,000 undocumented migrants. Yes. Here's the problem. There's no cap on the amount of people the amnesty actually applies to. It has been specifically put together not to limit the amount of people. There are qualifications that you need to have, such as being of good character, and you need to have lived here for a certain amount of time in order to be able to successfully apply for this. Chambers Ireland, by the way, is calling for those restrictions to be removed in the interest of justice, Michael, and not in the interest of cheap labour. No, no. No, no. Not like Chambers Ireland would do such a thing or has any interest in a large pool of disposable low-income workers and nothing to do with recent observations by people unconnected to them that we just don't have enough people uh, enough migrants in the country to drive down uh, lower end wages those are entirely unrelated things um, and we can only admire the open-heartedness and philanthropic urge of chambers ireland but so, so they want those restrictions gone but there's no limit on how many people this can apply to so i looked into the amount of illegal immigrants that are estimated to be in the country and to put it bluntly there's no really good estimate that 17,000 figure was put forward by one of the NGOs who work in this sector so we went to the NGO it was the Migrants Rights Centre of Ireland we went to them and we went how did you work out this figure because in 2018 you were saying there were 26,000 undocumented uh, adult migrants and then another 6,000 undocumented children. So how did we go from 32,000 to 17,000? And when did that happen? Because I don't think this figure first... I'm not sure exactly when this figure came out. They never got back in touch with me. I tried to go to um, other studies. There was a study that was referenced by previous ministers. It was um, a European Commission 
funded initiative called the Clandestino Project, I believe. Now, that said, there were between 30,000 and 62,000 illegal immigrants in Ireland. That was, I think, in 2009. And they did that by looking at UK data and trying to extrapolate it over to Ireland. There was also one put together by another group. They just said that there were less than 100,000 illegal immigrants in Ireland. And when I asked them, they said that they wouldn't release numbers below that because uh, illegal immigration trying to measure it obviously has a very large margin for error. And numbers below that, there's simply too much noise for them to stand over it. Yes. This is very difficult to do. But there are methodologies designed for this that could have been used. The department doesn't seem to have done anything on it. And I would say it's highly highly likely there are not 17,000 illegal immigrants in the country. There may be more, there may be less, but the chance of that number, which, as I said, the MRCI will simply not explain how they came up with, being correct is highly unlikely. I I trawled MRCI's archives looking for original documentation that would explain how that number was gotten to, and I don't know if they changed website or they moved something, but there's a lot of missing files it could have been in. But nothing I could find could explain the methodology of it. But it is the figure the government is briefing journalists are going to be let in, and I can see where they're doing that. It seems like the primary driving force for this in the government is the Green Party, not Helen McEntee at all. It is the Green Party. It was part of the program for government. The Green Party pushed for it. I would suspect, Michael, and this I could be totally wrong on this, this is something that's going to happen because the Green Party wants it to happen and everyone else signed off and a happening. There is no point doing a study to try and get these numbers right because it's going to happen anyway. And if you did a study and it said there's 30,000 or there's 40,000 or there's whatever, it's just going to make trouble for yourself. So just take the number the NGO has, apply the policy and have no expectation that it is itself correct. Now, I did try to FOI this. The department will not release any documentation they have discussing those numbers because they say it relates to the formulation of a policy which has not been finalised and is still under development. Now, I must send them another FOI request and see if they still say that. They're not going to give anything out on this. I doubt the department thinks this solid. I doubt anyone thinks it's solid. You want to be sort of perversely unfair to them. I think you're absolutely right in, the, in, in that. Why bother going to do a study? Because what are you going to find out? Anybody, you, you've been trying to chase up numbers here. I can tell you from my own experience around 15, oh God, yeah, 15 years ago, maybe a bit less. I spent months, I just got a thing in my head, trying to just, when it became clear to me that, that numbers that were being quoted regarding populations that were here, and I'm talking about European populations, a lot of them, I mean, EU populations, people from Poland, people the Baltics, whatever, that the numbers just seem to be all over the place. Nobody seems to have a constant number. And I got curious to, to try to understand how these numbers were being arrived at. And I took a deep dive into this. And Gary, I can tell you, it was pointless. Nobody knew anything. Everybody, at the end of the day, when you pushed them on it and got them into a quiet corner, would say, well, really, we're guessing. We think this. We have. And these were on the basis of people that were legally, perfectly legally here. They might have been shall we say, a little bit irregular regarding their, whether or not they they were, I don't know, whether they were being paid in cash or whether they were they had registered for PSI or if they were using, their own, they were using a PSI number or not. They were legal. But then I started to look at the Chinese population or the Brazilian population, a non-EU population. So. And it became absolutely clear to me after three, four months of doing it that all you had were groups, disparate groups, dozens and dozens and dozens of different groups, all of whom had a notion. You talk to the embassies. The embassies will have... You, if you can get them to talk to you, the embassies will have an idea of how many they think. The Chinese will have a certain idea. Getting information out of the Chinese, I can tell you, that is a tricky one. The Chinese have a certain idea of the number of uh, undocumented Chinese people that are living in Ireland. And all I can say at this stage is that it was certainly the case that the, the, the belief within uh, informed Chinese people in Ireland was there were far, far more Chinese here than anybody had a clue about. Brazilians the same. No, but there, there is just... If you're looking for data, if you're looking for numbers that you can make stand up in any kind of a coherent way, there just aren't any. And if you're the department and you and, and you just say you, you have a choice between just accepting a number that somebody's given you or going off to do some kind of proper investigation, the problem is you go off and you do that and it would become apparent very quickly that this country has no system of counting the number of people in it. We don't know. We just, we do not know who's who is in the gaff and who isn't. Within a certain tolerance, as you can say, it might be between 20,000 and 80,000. But some people might think that that's a concern for security, for example, that there, are, there might be radical 
or extremist groups that are using Dublin or Ireland as a as, as a base because it's easier to come and go and people don't notice you and you're not recorded and you're not, you're not I, I don't know. There's all sorts of reasons you, you might come up with. But the last thing in the world the department wants to do is to in getting, get involved in a counting procedure, which it knows it will fail. But once it's attempted to it, its failure will then become a problem because at that stage people will start to ask the question, well, why don't we know why there are, how many people are in the country? No, because that is something other countries have done, not perfectly, but far more successfully than we have. It's not that we're bad at it, it's that we, to a large extent, don't really try that hard. We've never really tried. I think the thing here is, I would be against the idea of amnesty. I don't, I don't think anyone who's illegally entered the country should ever be rewarded and they should all be deported post-haste. That's not because of an immigration issue, it's because of my general hardline stance on follow the law. But if you weren't wanted an amnesty like this, there are absolutely ways you could do it, where you could have initial ideas of how many people were involved before moving ahead. You could have lead-in projects, you could do research, you could do anything. The department does not appear to have done anything. The scheme itself does not appear designed to in any way do anything of that. And one thing I thought that you might think was very interesting, Michael, is the, um, even the press release that the uh, government sent out. Here's what the press release says. There is no reliable data on the number of undocumented persons in the states, but studies suggest there could be up to 17,000 undocumented persons, including up to 3,000 children, and that many could be in employment although likely low-paid employment. That, to the best of my knowledge, is a lie. There is one source of that figure. Yeah. And unless they've done multiple studies to get it, and I don't know why they would have, that's just not right. But that's what the Department of Justice is telling a journalist. But the part I thought you would really like is, did you know that Catherine Day has some involvement in this? Dr. Catherine Day, the person who allowed a citizen's assembly to act outside of the authority given to it by the Oroctus and is then expected to be treated like a serious person? It's Catherine involved in this. Well, you see the scheme, Michael. And this I hadn't been aware of. The scheme will include a parallel process to implement the recommendation included in the report of the expert advisory group led by Dr. Catherine Day by allowing international protection applicants who have had an outstanding application for international protection and have been in the asylum process for a minimum of two years to apply. So what's the point in having an asylum process then? Considering that you can very easily stretch it on over two years if you want. Yeah, well, well, you know, just wait until you get your two years and then, then jump queue. Well, you see, Michael, direct provision is a terrible problem for the government because they're unwilling to do anything about it like actually change the system so that those who are found to have no case are deported. But this, this would remove a ton of the most problematic people. I think they're just going to use this, get the amnesty for everyone who's been in direct provision longer than two years, empty that out, and then the problem is far less pressing. So politically, why not? Yeah, but you clear your intray. You can take all those people that are really annoying sitting there lurking in the system and then just move them over here. Anyway, the scheme is going to open in... um the scheme is going to open in January for six months. It's a once-in-a-generation scheme, Michael. I don't know why it would ever be a once-in-a-generation scheme, because once you've accepted the principle, it should be done. Why wouldn't you do it again? Yeah, and you know what, Gary? <laughs> I, on the other hand, I, I'm kind of conflicted on this. There's part of me which is agrees with you that there is a very, very strong utility in regarding the law as lawfulness as something which we, we place a very high value on. And that either we have a law and the law is implemented, or if but if you don't like the outcomes of the law, well, then you change the law. It's not that you keep the law, but ignore it. That's not what you're supposed to do in a, a, a republic founded on laws. On the other hand, there's part of me which says, well, you know, maybe run a kind of, a, not quite hunger games, but a kind of a sort of an economic survival game. If you can get into the gap and you can manage to stay here for a year without getting caught, then you can present yourself uh, with a, a year and a day on the steps of some church in Dublin and and claim sanctuary in some kind of ancient ritual and say, now I claim sanctuary and I want to become a freeman of this city. Well, I think, Michael, that we should all be thankful that we have a sensible centre-right government because God imagine what Sinn Féin would do regarding those who had broken the law. Mm, yes, they're, 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 they're very bad on, they're, they're down on, on lawbreakers. So there's one, one final fun thing about this, because it's a Fine Gael minister. Um, 
and I, I, I love it. A fee of 700 euro will generally apply to family unit applications to assist in recovering the course of administration. A fee of 700 euro? A fee of 550 euro will apply to individuals' applications. So, you know, we've got to do this, Michael, because it's, it's, it's the just and dignified and humane response to this crisis. But if you don't have 700 quid, you can fuck off right into the ocean. What do you think you No, you don't get to regularize yourself. You stay per and illegal. That's what you do. That's what you deserve. I mean, if you're going to do it, for fuck's sake, do it for free. It's just like we're going to allow tens of thousands of people, ultimately an unknown amount of people, who've broken a law to benefit, but by God, we'll make some money on it. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. There's... <laughs> There's something twisted about that. There is a some of these people have been illegally trafficked in. You know, we've we the examples they've chosen have been really heartfelt, like that. Mm. And then you're like, you know, on low incomes, and our money has been taken from them. It's like, oh, so this bill will help them? No, no, not them. No, they they're gonna have to scrape together some cash first. Can you imagine the other scenario? Some horribly poor bunch of people who have been trafficked in here to engage in some kind of horrible sweatshop activity or. And they managed to break out and get to the steps of the Department of Justice, whoever is doing this. And they put their hand on the stone of freedom and claimed their right to amnesty. And the man is there and says, that's grand, yeah. Now, uh, have you, we either take cash or a banker's draft, you know? <laughs> like, I'm imagining in my head these are poor Laotian or Chinese women who have been engaged in some kind of so, you know, clothes making and some, some tiny basement off Capel Street. Looking and going, what now? Ah, yeah, you know, it's 700 and, 725 quid uh, for processing. And they went, it's a what? It's not, I thought it was an amnesty. Um, it's an amnesty of kinds, but you, you don't have the 700. No, no. They, they, they don't pay us any money. We're slave labour. They just, we have a, a mattress and they feed us white rice. Three times a day. That's all we get. Ah, well, you say, no, I'm sorry, no. You're not covered by this. Jesus, lads. I mean, if you're going to do it. You're like an, an undocumented couple. The husband looks at the wife and just pushes her away from the steps so he can get in for 550 instead of 700, and that's all he's got. Jesus, at that stage, Gary, you might have just put her in, put over the wall into the living and then softened her in. I, when I read the press release and I got to this, I just started laughing. It was just like 700 euro to cover the cost of administration. Children up to 23 years can be included in a family unit application. 550 for an individual application. And it's it's so wonderfully bureaucratic. Not 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 18, not 21, 23 years. Yeah. <laughs> I I love it. I just they can't even even when they do something like this, they can't do it properly. Like Jesus Christ, lads. I mean, sorry, that's just <laughs> That's just really horrible, you know. <laughs> it, 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 the, it runs for six months. So I imagine there are going to be some people in quite bad circumstances who would struggle to get 700 quid over six months. Oh, I tell you, the moneylenders will do well out of this. But what are we going to do to people who apply and are like, I have this horrible story. These things, I was trafficked into the country, then I, I just stayed, I managed to escape, but I don't have the cash. Is the department going to deport them? Because they'll have applied to the department. They'll have admitted to being illegal. The department will give them the link for GoFundMe. I, I don't agree with these bills. And I think the way they're discussed is frankly manipulative. That it is put forward in a way to just make it very difficult to say no to it. But then you do something like this and it's just... I just laughed. I enjoyed it. I just enjoyed it so much. Anyway, on the 17,000 figure, the minister has admitted in the doll that that figure came from the Migrants' Rights Centre of Ireland, that it didn't come from any other source. And previous ministers have unfortunately been quite explicit about the fact that all of this research is totally unreliable and that we actually have no idea. Which is a bit of a problem. Well, I shouldn't say it's a problem now, but the newspapers, this is the sort of thing a lot of like the Irish newspapers like. They're not going to come out and go into this searing investigation that shows that the government is basically poli pulling policy out of its ass. So there's no cost to the government for doing this. Once you get the number established, it'll be repeated by four or five articles, which will then be repeated themselves and so on and so forth. And then you reference the articles. 
when you're talking about it. And therefore, and the, and the number will become a reality. Consensus laundering. Hey-ho. So, so we've, we've talked about this idea of uh, acceptable deaths, that there is a certain level of background death in society that society will accept. And as COVID-19 becomes endemic, this isn't pleasant, but the reality of it is there has to be a certain amount of death that is accepted and allows society to go back to something approximating normal. And that will happen naturally, whether or not we want it to happen. People will acclimatise to COVID-19, to the low levels of death, and they will be willing to live their lives in particular ways. As cases surge at certain points of the year, people will change their behaviour in the same way they do with flu. It is inevitable we will reach that point. But the question becomes, what point is that? And it's very difficult to explicitly talk about these things, and it's very difficult explicitly to give a number on these things, because it really happens when a society becomes culturally comfortable with it. It just becomes a normal part of living. And what I think we do have to thank Tony Houlihan for is putting an actual number and saying that's too many. Because then we can talk about that number and say, okay, if that's too many, what is the limit there? When, what do we need to reduce that to before we can begin uh, going back to uh, something normal? And I think the point there, Michael, is when we talk about um, restrictions, no one that I'm aware of is proposing a total lockdown of the style we got in early 2020. So everyone is accepting that some level of death is acceptable here. Because if you really, really believed that that was not the case, that no amount of debt was was in any way permissible from COVID-19, you would push for the harshest and longest things. Now, they might not work, and I don't think they would, but they're what you would push for. So even the people who are, I think, most opposed to the idea of saying there's some acceptable level of deaths, themselves act as if they too believe there is an acceptable level of deaths. They're just not going to come out and say that's what they're doing. Yeah, but I'm not so sure that we can draw that conclusion. I think that what we're looking at here is that we have decided that the current situation requires a certain response. If we look at what's happening in Germany, for example, at the moment, the Germans seem to be peddling fairly hard into a pretty strict lockdown. Austrians the same. Others in regionally, there's that may be happening. I'm not sure if it's a simply a question that these that people have accepted that a certain amount of this. I think that rather we are still case driven here. Now it was supposed to be the case that the vaccination program would break the link between cases and mortalities, and that is what happened. The link between the two has been ruptured, and there's the numbers of people who are dying is thankfully much, much lower than it historically was. But we are still case-obsessed. Now, it's becoming clear and clear, and we don't want to really get this, but that an awful lot of this is not necessarily, perhaps, about the problem of COVID itself, but rather that we are that the restrictions are not being introduced in order to protect us from COVID, but rather because they're perceived to be restrictions necessary to to protect the infrastructure of our healthcare system, rather than as a response to a particular disease. Now, Michael, not to be too pointed there, but heavily curtailing the actions and civil liberties of the population in order to protect the health service would seem to be the absolute inverse of how that system is meant to operate. Well, it might be, but you might also say that it's an indicator that we have a healthcare system on which we spend a lot of money, but which is pathetically fragile and not fit for purpose. But rather than even consider dealing with that issue, we've decided that the issue today is we're going to protect and continue to protect it. Now, as regards the assessment, I, I don't believe that you're going to find anybody out there who is going to be willing to admit in public that they would regard zero as the acceptable rate of death from COVID, because that's just not going to play. But I do think you've got significant numbers out there who would regard pretty close to zero as being the acceptable level. And what I wanted to simply to comment here is, is to go back to something which we have said before, and I said this we're talking about NEFIT and we're talking about government and the various roles they have. A fundamental failure of this government has been its failure to properly deal with the the processes that are going to go with the end of this pandemic. We It has not properly addressed 
preparing people to come out and part of that preparation is a is not just the odd comment but to have a continual public discussion on what it is going to look like when we make those steps into re returning to normal society and as part of that making it clear again and again by dint of repetition and conversation and public debate and radio and tv uh, communication that that is not going to involve zero deaths but there will be certain amount of deaths there will be certain amount of people getting ill and that is going to be part of what this reality will look like but we have not had that they have refused to have to face up to what is their this is their job this this is part of their their their, 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 their they have a moral obligation to do this and they're failing in that I think there is a, for all that people now generally accept that COVID-19 is endemic and is going to be around, and it's no more a case of it can be stamped out or it can be contained indefinitely. There does seem to be this fantasy that while it will still be there, no one will ever die from it. If we do things properly, it's possible to get a situation where no one ever dies and we just need to achieve that situation and I think it's naive, and I think it's kind of childlike. It's simply not the reality of life. That's not to say it's a good thing. It's just a thing. It is the reality. But we don't want to have, I think you're right, we don't want to have that conversation. Partially because it's difficult in a democracy to have that conversation. Because it assumes a level of, not capability, but appropriate temperament both in politicians and in the public. I think that's part of why other countries have reacted very differently, because culturally and temperamentally, those cultures have different understandings of risk and of life and death. That may be true. I think it's also here has been informed by the fact that at the government level and then perhaps more importantly at the effort level, we have taken a position which would, be described as extremely protective and have created an atmosphere of a really strong atmosphere of threat and danger and I think that very simply that's one of the reasons why we have our vaccination levels as high as they are that's not simply a factor because we're all such good citizens it's because people are frightened and they're frightened to a degree and at a level that other people are not we talked about this before I think in the summer or possibly before um, when there were discussions about, well, part of the discussion was about how there could be no acceptable death level, but there were also discussions about the principles behind lockdowns and when they would be used. And I remember we had a discussion at the time, and part of it was about how the British idea of opening in summer may be a better idea than opening whenever we open. At that time, I don't think it was clear when we would, because if there's any degree of seasonality to it, um, you don't want that in winter when the health service is under the most pressure and also because when you open up you expect cases to rise so you, you want that at the point when your hospital is uh, under the least pressure. That seemed perfectly reasonable. But the other thing I think we were discussing was the arguments being put forward for why we needed to continue lockdown. Once those arguments were accepted, lockdown could never end because they were arguments that no one must die. And I think at the time we had been saying that but you can't do that. And if that is the basis on which you establish lockdowns or you establish restrictions, you're constantly just going to yo-yo and there will be no end point. The arguments they have used are not capable of being ended. And I think that is still part of the issue. The, the arguments used can never end lockdown. Because every time you come out of lockdown and every time you, you, you go through the period where your cases are very, very low and they're low and they're, you will the nature of this beast is there will be an outbreak somewhere and somebody will die and as we have set up our system here the response to that is return to lockdown that's the trigger rather than say well okay we're just going to have to now exist with this but exist with it within certain parameters Beha maybe changed behaviors maybe wider use of antigen testing maybe better hygiene maybe going in and running our healthcare, our our old age our, our, our elderly care centres and our vulnerable people uh, protecting them better, just simply doing a better job of that than we have done. Instead of doing that, you know what we're saying? We, the numbers go up, somebody, somebody dies, bang, 
that's the trigger and off we go back into lockdown. That you're absolutely right, that's just the way it's been set up. And as long as we work on that premise, then it will, it will, it won't end. It can't end. There is no end point. But on this particular thing, Eric, you said, yeah, there's, there's a distaste about it. And I can understand, it's, it is a, a, an understandable distaste. When we talked about this before, I, I, I gave a, a sort of backhanded kudos to Leo Varadkar because Leo seemed to be coming out and saying we have to come to a point where we're willing to understand what we consider to be an acceptable level of uh, co-living, shall we say, with this virus. They've given us a number now, and I think you're right, we should thank seven. Now, let's not get into some kind of petty debate about that. Let's just accept seven. What then is the acceptable number? Well, I think first we have to contextualize it. Because seven deaths a day. Now, let's say that were to continue until Christmas, Michael. I mean, 217 deaths across the entirety of the month from the 1st to the 31st. That's quite a lot of deaths when considered in isolation. But the thing people have to remember is that Ireland is a country of millions of people. And things that you might think are incredibly rare or incredibly tragic are actually very, very common. So, in Ireland, every year, about 30,000 people die, just generally. That's not COVID, that's not anything, that's just the general death rate. It's actually, I think, a bit higher. I think usually about 32,000. But let's just take it as that. If that's the case, somewhere between 80 and 85 people die every day. Let's say 82. That's 2,547 deaths in December. Assuming those deaths are spread evenly across the year, which they may not be. They won't. So that is the average, that is the actual context of this. It's not seven deaths against nothing. It's seven deaths a day against 82 deaths a day. I don't, I don't think if we just say how many deaths in isolation, it doesn't, it's very easy to present any sort of death as a tragedy because it is to the people closest to it. But when you start talking about large numbers, when you start talking about societal conditions, well, then you need to know how common things actually are. And there is quite a lot of death, generally. Uh, most of those deaths are going to be caused by uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attack, cancer, stroke. Um, and it's worth wondering in the context of what we've been talking And we're not, God knows we're not the only ones wondering this, how many deaths are happening now or may happen in the future that are surplus deaths in the case of stroke, cardiovascular illness, or cancer because of lifestyle issues or delayed or weakened or inferior health care that people suffering from those illnesses receive as a consequence of the shutdown uh, provoked by COVID. So it's not, it's not exactly a, it's not a, it's not a sum that is a simple sum. I mean, it may be that uh, uh, actions that we take against COVID in order to reduce the fatality rates of COVID provoke higher fatality rates in individuals with other uh, diseases. But but what does it, I don't what does it mean? You say in context. What does it mean? I mean, seven in the context of how many? In the context of what? In how many? How, how many cases? What is the fatality rate? Are we, are we moving from a pandemic to a disease which is epi- which is endemic? And if it is becoming endemic, does that mean that we have to change the way we think about it? I would also say this, Michael. And we said we would take the seven number uh, and accept it as is. Yeah. My problem with that is this. Tony Hulahan made those comments on the third. But we know from the HPSC report for the week previous that ran from the 24th of the 11th to the 30th of the 11th. So with only three days in the gap there at all, that 23 people died over that week. So that that's not a debt rate of seven a day. That's a debt rate of three a day. Yeah. And if you go back the week before that, then 18 people died over the week. The week before that, 22. Also, I, mean, I think it's just unreasonable to ask where and in what circumstances are these people dying? And how do the circumstances of their death connect with the restrictions that are being imposed in order to deal with the problem of COVID. The statistics that the department issued for the last for the week, for the last four weeks show that 
if you look at outbreaks, 26 outbreaks occurred in nursing homes, 81 outbreaks occurred in hospitals, 27 in residential cares for people with disabilities, and seven in refuges for, for refugee, refuges for women. Over the same period, there were three outbreaks in hotels, four outbreaks in pubs, and two outbreaks in restaurants. Now, I, yeah, at the risk of saying the being obvious, there are, it says, 81 outbreaks in hospitals, right, Gary? There are two outbreaks in restaurants. Just as an understanding of risk, there are thousands of restaurants in Ireland, and pubs, and hotels, hundreds if not thousands of hotels. There are not hundreds and thousands of hospitals. You know, I, I think there is a good point there. And you can see it very clearly when you look at deaths and deaths linked to outbreaks. So there have been about 5,700 COVID deaths since all of this started. Mm-hmm. About 3,500 or 3,600 of those have been linked to outbreaks. But when you go and you look at where those outbreaks happen, over 60% of of deaths linked to an outbreak come from nursing homes. Nearly 25% of outbreaks, uh, deaths linked to outbreaks, comes from hospitals. Then it goes to community hospitals and long-stay units. That's 4%. Mm -hmm. Residential institutions, 3%. All of the deaths linked to outbreaks, all of the other ones, other locations, be they pubs, private houses, hotels... Uh, workplaces, uh, religious congregations. Of the oh, 5,700 deaths we've had, 266 deaths have been linked to those. Yeah. 7.4% of, of all the deaths that are believed to have been caused by outbreaks came from those. And 63% of all the deaths this country has seen have been explicitly linked to outbreaks occurring in one of those options I just read. So it would seem on that reading that the areas of concern are perhaps not where Nefit is concerned about. It does at times feel like restrictions are being applied to parts of, we call it the economy, but let's call it life, to those areas of life where it can be done in an easy and visible way. So that you announce that we're going to, we're going to either, we're going to close the pubs. We're going to limit the number of people that can go to restaurants. We're going to limit the access that people have to restaurants, the time they can spend, the space between. We're going to impose all these rules and people will experience them and see them. And we'll say, look, all of this is being done. All these good things are being done. But we have reached a point now, Gary, where in a population which is 94% vaccinated. Depends how you split it and what age you actually look at it from, but it's it's in that region. But you know what? I mean, if you look at vaccination in, in and compare it to other vaccinations, we are incredibly highly highly vaccinated in comparison to other diseases that we vaccinate for. We are definitely up there at the top of the tree, along with Malta and Israel, I think probably Dubai and the Emirates. What? Who are we protecting from what? what? How much of the regulation is being imposed to actually produce a concrete outcome, a specific concrete health benefit. And how much of this is being done? Because it can be done. It creates a perception of activity. It's a sense of performance. But actually, the, the amount of positive effect it has, whether it's on case numbers or on deaths. And also, listen, we're back being obsessed with case numbers again. And I understand, that we, although we, we can also recognise that the projected case numbers were before the new variant, the great new variant had happened. The projected, the most optimistic projections for December were way off uh, in the sense that they they were far the projections were far worse than what actually happened. They were and just on that note there's a, a lag between any regulation coming into force but also a lag between even someone coming out and saying you should change your behavior because COVID has an incubation time. So I've heard this sort of well you know the rate was going up but then NEFA came out and the government came out and it started to fall but that's not what happened. Because you're looking at detected cases and there is an incubation period there of at least a week. So if that were the case, it would have continued going up for a week after they initially started coming out. And then you would have seen a decline or maybe a leveling off and then a decline. But that's not what you saw. By the time they were coming out, it looked like they were already wrong, but they didn't realize it. And they their modeling was substantially off. And now they've just said they're going to come out with new modeling. They haven't explained why their modelling was so wrong. On a day where you're having Holohan coming out saying that the new variant could lead to between 6,000 and 15,000 cases a day, we also, we, on the other hand, we see reported that this, mass, this week was, quote, a massive week of discharges 
continues with 64 in today's report. This is from the 4th. The official count, hospital count, is 487. That is a 29% drop in just 13 days. Now, I don't want to impute any kind of bad faith or ill will to Dr. Hollohan, but no more than myself, I'm sure, Gary, you have been rummaging around on the internet looking at the various bits and pieces of, of news insofar as we have hard news and data about the Omicron uh, variant, right? And you're looking at the reports from doctors in South Africa and from the, the South African health authorities. You're looking at reports and statements from WHO and from all the other various code groups around the world. And there's one thing that all of them are saying. We have no idea yet. We do not have the data yet. We are not in a position to make any kind of statement yet about what this new variant is going to be or what it's going to look like. There are all sorts of hypotheses out there that maybe this is great news. Maybe we we have we have now arrived at the variant that we all hoped we might arrive at, which is a, a variant which is far more infectious than other variants, but far less virulent. In other words, it's much more it's much more infectious, but that when people catch it, it's actually far less dangerous, producing far milder symptoms far lower levels of hospitalization or ICUs or deaths or fatality, which, of course, is where you want to be. But we don't know that. But in the absence of any kind of certainty, and we hear this, as I say, from the, the Department of the Health, the various health groups in South Africa, we're hearing this from the UK, we're hearing it from the WHO. At the same time, we're hearing from Dr. Hollihan, case numbers could rise between 6,000 and 15,000 per day. What is, there is, there really, I'm, I'm trying very, and if, help me here, is there some kind of reasonable modelling basis for him at this point, at this juncture, to be able to say that? We asked about reasonableness, and I, I, I will, I'll make this note. When I said earlier I didn't know what Houlihan was referring to when he was talking about seven days a week, I suspect I do know what he is referring to. I can't be certain, but it relates to the question of statistics and how good they are. There was a, you may have seen the media there a while ago, Michael, talking about how there were 55 deaths notified on one day, COVID deaths, and that there had been something like 40 the day before. You may also note that those numbers are different from the numbers I read when I was saying what the HPSC has put out. Yeah. The 55 number was reported on the 1st of December. The problem there, and where it goes to what statistics are worth paying attention to, is 55 deaths being notified is not the same as 55 people dying that day. And this is a no, This is something that has been brought up repeatedly during the pandemic. I know the Irish Medical Times has done a lot of stuff on it. And it was something that the media itself had reported on a great deal earlier in the pandemic, reminding people that because of delays in the death registration process, you had these backlogs and then just this mass of numbers appearing that could be several times larger than everything around it. But the debt rate was absolutely not going up. Yes. I suspect that that's what he's done. They've taken those figures and they've treated them as if they were debts. Now, this is, by the way, just a general point about debts in Ireland. It can take a month to register uh, for the government to get the information about a debt properly. In other cases, it can take you know a quarter. Suicides in particular are horrendous. But you're, you're talking about whether or not there's a reasonable modelling basis for him to come out and say that those numbers are there. I don't know. But I don't think there was a reasonable modelling basis for him to come out and say seven people a day were dying of COVID. But he still did it. And who's going to stop him? He just says what he wants. And if you look at the modelling that we had before the new variant for the numbers for December, which were way, as we we point out, way off. All people say, oh, well, the modelling was, they got it wrong on the high side. We are, we are now in a situation, Gary, where when surveyed, what was it, 10 days ago or so? More than half of the people in this country were of the opinion that the pandemic is now worse at the moment or the worst is still to come than it was a year ago. And yet, if you look at, say, the numbers for case, the case numbers for November and January, right? There were similar case numbers for January of this year and uh, November of this year. But the deaths were a fraction. I, I can't remember the deaths off the top of my head now. I think the deaths in November went were something like 190, but that might be completely off. Well, I mean, you, you say, I mean, even on cases... Over November, we maybe went up to about 6,000, like 5.5. Five. In January, we went up as high as, I think, something like 8,000 a day. That was the absolute peak of it, it was eight or 9,000 a day. So we didn't 
I mean, we got to maybe two thirds of the January level because I remember Neffet coming out and saying it could actually be substantially worse than January. How is it that we feel? How how is it that we got to the point where, with the level of inoculation we have, of va- vaccination that we have, that people still think that, that it's either worse now than it was when something like between an eighth and a tenth of the, the number of the people who are dying has, has, or the worst is still to come, unless it's been fed by an alarmism, which is just not. This cannot, I am now, I'm triple vaxxed, right? I have had my booster shot and I'm glad to have had it. Uh, in my family, on the rest of my family are the same and the adults in my family. On the basis of what's being muted at the moment, the level of social interaction that will be permitted, inverted commas, over the Christmas period is going to be slightly more restrictive than it was last time. And yet we're going to be looking at a situation where, where last Christmas nobody was, nobody in the household my, that I would have been mixing with on Christmas Day was vaccinated. To a situation where, if we have say seven adults on Christmas Day, all seven of us will have had, will have received both of the vaccinations and our booster. And according to the numbers that were being given, both by the medical authorities and by the pharmaceutical people, if you you got your booster and it's kicked in, you're talking about levels of protection against hospitalisation and death, which are like up at 98, 99%. What? I'm finding it harder and harder, Gary, and I'm not doing this out of some kind of paranoid, anti-government, anti-vax thing. I'm finding it harder and harder to look at the regulations and restrictions that are being introduced and to see in them measures which are effective against the spread of COVID to people who are going to be potentially threatened by that that either the vaccinations have a purpose or they don't and either we the, the either we have decided that we're going to live in this kind of permanent covid world or that we are going to at some stage take our foot forward and say okay we're going to go forward and again that there has there is increasingly increasingly no connection between the economic and social costs imposed by these restrictions and the health benefits that they're producing when you look at the where the deaths are occurring and you look at the outbreaks that are occurring and where the attention is being paid uh, in wider society to these restrictions. I, I find it harder and harder to see the usefulness of the modelling that this is being based on has been wrong and so badly wrong, so consistently wrong. I got to the point where I, I, I wonder why why we would listen to them. I mean, there is a curious story which came up today, wasn't it, where the government has now decided that nobody from Leffert is going to be allowed to speak to the press without having previously been cleared by the government. Yeah, I've seen some people who've been unhappy with that. But I think given that we've had multiple instances in which members of Neffa have come out and said things that were either at variance with government policy or simply at variance with reality, they had already gotten to a point where they need to be pulled back They should have been pulled back near the start of this. They should never have been let get to this point. I'll put a link to the article. It was a Hugh O'Connell story in the Irish Independent about a a ministerial meeting with Neffet. One thing I thought that was quite interesting about the story is the ministers are there and they are basically trying to bollock Neffet and Neffet is having none of it. And it runs through, you know, the usual roster of people who'd be at a meeting like that. Even Catherine Martin is mentioned. Yes. Neil Martin isn't mentioned. No, absent. They're silent on the subject. Not a mention of the Taoiseach. Pulling it, you would think. Leo is mentioned quite a lot. Leo is alleged to have had some quite stinging criticisms for them about the accuracy of their modelling and how odd it was that they were now advising that there be increased restrictions given that both cases and hospitalizations were now falling. Uh, do you know what? It's not it's not a bad point. Everything once upon a time I used to be an, an English language teacher. And it seems to me that Neffet is a has turned into a group of people that lives in the conditional mode. Could and would. Everything is could. It could happen. We could have these numbers. We could have these deaths. The indicative has been abolished in their world. Well, the numbers are these. The numbers are falling. The discharges are increasing. The the the, the IFR is 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 dropping. It doesn't matter. They live in this the world of of conditionals. And of course, it's possible. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it isn't possible. But we'll take it that they, what they're saying is possible. But how likely? Also interesting is the report in the Indo. Now, this is interestingly put. It says two sources at the meeting claimed Leo Varadkar said Nefe had become 
a political organization, although the Tanishta is understood to be disputing this account. He also said that uh, a peer review or external review of their modelling might be welcome. So here's the thing about all of this, Michael. They're the government. Never work for them. Two years in, you should never have a situation where you have to say, we should get your modelling externally reviewed because they work for you. If they can't explain it now, they haven't been able to explain it for two years. Yeah. So if you let them go for two years without ever checking their work, that's not on them, that's on you. Particularly considering they have been so consistently miles off and always miles off in one particular direction. Yeah. Oh, well, we won't relitigate that. But they're always off in the direction which is the, is the direction which ultimately doesn't pay a price. The one sadness of this um, new story, Michael, that these people will have to go to the press office, is that we won't get another fantastic moment like Ronan Glynn saying that he had never said schools were safe. I believe the immediate reaction to that was newspapers pulling together the top ten times that he himself had said schools were safe. Mm. Mm. I don't think this will work, though. I think that what's going to happen is you're going to start seeing... Nefit members leak heavily. Yeah, yeah. Listen, all that will happen is that people will 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 spin. They will leak, and they'll do so on their own account. They will do it as private individuals, as concerned citizens, as qualified scientists or doctors, not as members of Nefit, but on their own behalf. They've gotten used to it now. They've been allowed to get used to it. They've built up connections with the media, personal relationships. It's going to be trivially easy for them to do this if they want to. And why wouldn't they want to, given that they have shown absolute willingness to do it up to this point? So we will, I think, close it there. Uh, we will be back as per normal on Wednesday. Um, hopefully we will not be taking any more breaks over the next while. I've got to say, Michael, like I, I sat down to record the show with you tonight. And because I was sick during the week and I didn't do the Wednesday or Friday shows, and I didn't really pay much attention to news or follow the things I would have normally done. Like I wrote one or two articles for Grip, but just on stuff I already had going or I saw. I had totally lost track about what was happening in the country in the space of a week. Like, I can only imagine how discombobulating some of this time has been to people who are not basically paid to look at the news all day. Like, I just, after a week, I was looking at it and I was like, has that happened or is that happening or when is it happening? And who's involved and when did this start? Stuff just seems to happen in Ireland. With no, like, reports that have been talked about for years will just release on a Tuesday with no mention from anyone that they've released. That just seems to happen in Ireland. There are two things that I noticed, because I, I didn't really pay much attention for around a week to ten days, uh, because I wasn't feeling up to it much. But uh, when I went around doing my, my, my nose through, my 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 various alerts on my, and my various emails, which I get from various people, and news alerts and things, and then going through the, the papers. Two things occurred to me that were very dispiriting. One was that sense, first of all, of not really knowing where anything was. But do you know what, Gary? Also having a sense of, didn't this happen before? Did we not do this already? Is this not? Is this news? Is this old? The number of times I would go back and check a, a, a dateline on an article, or a tweet, or a, or a post somewhere, because I couldn't, I had this awful sense of, but I'm sure we did that before. So there's a, a, not only a sense that everything is happening, but also everything is happening, but it's happening again. Anyway, we shall be back, as you say, on Wednesday, which is the 8th of December, which in used to be a holiday in this country. Still is a holiday in Christian countries in Europe, but thankfully we're no longer a Christian country, so we don't have any of that nonsense. <laughs>